I am a robot voice. The introduction to this episode was compromised by an invasion of Bigfoots. There were many casualties, yet in the end, they all lay slain. Welcome to Cryptic Chronicles. A show dedicated to exploring the unexplained mysteries of existence, fringe knowledge, and everything dark, cryptic, or weird in the world. In this episode, we are going to cover an overview of the Gnostics as requested, as well as a real-world view of possible Atlantis sites, and the Nephilim connection to the ancient Babylonian king Nimrod. Let's get into it, shall we? You are listening to Cryptic Chronicles. So before we get into Nimrod, I didn't have enough time to do it last episode, but what do all these myths and lore around Atlantis and the Nephilim have to do with the real world? Is there any evidence worth looking at or pondering? Well, though Atlantis has yet to be discovered and most likely will not be discovered in our lifetimes, or probably our children's lifetimes too, there are countless cities and landmasses under the water across the globe. And also remember, Atlantis is just an idea. The civilization does not have to be called Atlantis. The name just embodies the idea of an ancient lost civilization that was highly advanced. But there have been some pretty anomalous discoveries under the ocean. These lost cities proven a hundred times over, and we just keep finding more and more of them. Such as the Atlantis of Japan, the Yonaguni Monument, Dwarka, Azores, and many more. The only problem is the mainstream scientists don't really want to mess with this stuff for many valid reasons. I mean, I can't blame them. However, throughout history, there is a million places that have claimed to be Atlantis. But the recent discovery of the Azores Islands is probably the like uh, like the most fascinating to me at the moment. Back in 2013, news reports in Portugal stated that a huge underwater pyramid was discovered. According to the reports, the pyramid is perfectly square and orientated by its cardinal points. The Azores is an interesting area that has islands and it's a region that actually consists of a chain of nine volcanic islands, basically in three main groups that are roughly 930 miles west of the capital, Lisbon. They're all situated around the fault lines between the North American, Eurasian, and African tectonic plates and ancient ruins are pretty spread all about the area. The pyramid was found in an area of the Mid-Atlantic, and it is believed that the structure has been underwater for about 20,000 years. Which is insanely old, though I question the dating. One thing though that links all of these ancient underwater ruins is the discovery of pyramids. Well, not all of them. I don't think Dwarka has ruins. I mean, uh, pyramid ruins. But, uh, and the connections from like uh, myth to geographic recorded history is undeniable. It's pretty weird we know more about outer space than the depths of our own oceans. In the year 2000, researchers discovered off the coast of Gujarat in India 
mysterious structures that pointed towards the existence of an ancient city on the seabed. In 2001, the discovery was confirmed by the Minister for Science and Technology, Merli Manahar Joshi, when he officially admitted that it was an underwater city that was destroyed by the Great Flood. In the same year, the remains of wood and pottery were found in the vicinity of the archaeological site. These findings were carbon dated, and uh, according to the tests, researchers believe that these mysterious underwater ruins are between 13,000 to 31,300 years old. The underwater city of Kambahat is believed to be the oldest underwater city found to date. Also back in 2001, researchers were performing underwater explorations in the Caribbean, basically right off the coast of Cuba with the help of a robotic submarine. What they found at the depth of 600 meters was anything but what they expected to find. An area of over 200 square kilometers covered in structures, pyramids, and other man-made buildings. It's a gigantic underwater complex that, according to mainstream archaeology and uh, mainstream researchers, doesn't exist. According to geologist Manuel, I can't pronounce his last name, who participated in the research, it is possible that the submerged ruins found belong to an antediluvian civilization, dating back all the way to 10,000 BCE or before. They're not too clear, but images of the floor confirmed the existence of the gigantic granite blocks, which are circular and perpendicular in their formations. The discovery has led to several theories, one of them proposing that the Yucatan Peninsula was once connected to Cuba in a, a land bridge. Researchers from Mexico believe that these underwater remains could be attributed to an ancient civilization like the one that built ancient Teotihuacan. Haha, I know how to pronounce that one because I love Mesoamerica. And remember that all these are real-world discoveries that date back to the antediluvian world. These cities are huge, with incredibly advanced structures and perfect geometry. And all this back when us humans should be just hunter-gatherers. Honestly, there's just as much to discover underneath the oceans as there is to discover underneath the Earth. Our ancestors have survived a lot of messed up stuff. Not only crazy earth changes such as ice ages, but floods and asteroids causing clouds in the sky to basically be there for generations. I'm thinking that there's a lot, there's, no, there's a ton of lost history that we've yet to find. Because with all the lore surrounding people going to the underworld and uh, survival being better suited to living in the earth at many points in human history, who knows what the hell could be down there? And of course, thinking about Michael Sarian's version of the Atlantis myth, according to him, at least, there's entire city-sized caves down there, fully capable of sustaining life. And who knows? The Bible says that the Watchers are trapped deep in the earth. The abyss. So what if we found caves and caverns that go deep, deep down, and we discover the Watchers down there? That'd be pretty awkward. But before I get too off track, my point is just that there are very real valid reasons why people take Atlantis myths seriously. A lot of times they don't literally mean Atlantis. Like I said already, it's just the idea of Atlantis. And that there's a lot about our history as, a, as the human race that we just don't understand. 
And if there's one thing I'd have you take from all these episodes on the Nephilim and the Watchers, it would be that. But then again, there's a lot of bullshit too. I've many times come across researchers connecting things with no connections for dumb reasons. Like uh, certain words sounding phonetically similar, so they have to mean this or that, which is ridiculous. It's more a matter of people looking for evidence to prove their own theories right. Which is confirmation bias and knowledge filtration. The enemy of reason and true science. Anyway, let's go see what's up with Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. I'll be right back and I grab some coffee. In the book Nimrod, A Discourse Upon Certain Passages of History and Fable, Algernon Herbert claims that Atlantis was a residence of the Nephilim, also called Titans, attributed to Greek mythology by him. But this dude was whack and obviously just trying to sell books, and uh, pretty far from a, a real researcher, in my opinion. Though lore surrounding Nimrod has some interesting insights, if you're unfamiliar with Nimrod, he was the king of Babylon, famous for the Tower of Babel. He tried to build a tower that would reach to heaven, tried to build a tower that would reach the gods, which can be translated as an interesting sci-fi concept. The way that uh, mysterious events make Nimrod as a Nephilim is similar to the Children of Night giving power to the evil faction of Atlanteans from the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, with many interpreting it as an offer by these dark entities that grants great power and influence, though with a terrible cost. Could Nimrod have been using the same rituals? Just interesting to think about, not insinuating anything. But something mysterious happened to Nimrod that would make him quote-unquote be like the Nephilim. Whatever that means. How the story plays out in the Bible is God gets pretty pissed off that Nimrod would be so arrogant to do such a thing, I guess. And as the story goes, this is where all of the different languages of all the different cultures kind of spring up all at once. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them of the ancient world. Pretty much all of a sudden, everybody didn't understand what each other was saying. All of a sudden, they all spoke different languages and couldn't communicate anymore, which in turn instigated everybody to kind of spread out and uh, form their own civilizations elsewhere. But Nimrod was more than just the king of Babylon. His kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. So in a way, he could actually be seen as the ruler of the world at the time. Not literally, but pretty much. And the Tower of Babel itself was said to be built around 100 years after the Great Deluge, the Cataclysm, which can't really be accurate and doesn't align with the timeline, but for the sake of narrative, we'll just go with it. He was the son of Cush, who was the son of Ham, who was biblically cursed with having Nephilim blood. But he's also linked to the Nephilim through his Akkad lineage, Akkadian. The Akkad with the two Ks is basically the gods. And he was considered the great hunter before God, with the Sumerian Anunnaki god of the hunt linked to him named Ninurta. Name him him a great hero. And as we've gone over from many points of view, the great heroes of myth were Nephilim. But Nimrod originally did seem to be human whereas somehow he was transformed into a giant. 
he was transformed into a Nephilim. And there's no elaboration on it, leaving it extremely mysterious and up for speculation. I'm sure a lot of ancient alien theorists and enthusiasts would say that it would be genetic manipulation, genetic engineering. Especially since he already had the genetics of Nephilim in his blood from his ancestors. So he really just had to do something to activate those genes is what some people think. Again, don't take anything that I'm saying serious. I'm just presenting you cryptic weird lore. But what's interesting is the wording when used to describe a lot of his reign and whatnot is, is that um, it says that he became a mighty one in the earth. Just like earlier in Genesis when it says that there were giants in the earth in those days. This isn't a weird translation error or a screw up. It's distinctly saying in the earth. When you translate Hebrew and Greek from the oldest versions of the story, it's yeah, in the earth. And as we know about Anunnaki lore and the Nephilim lore from past episodes, supposedly these guys had a bunch of underground cities everywhere. With these texts actually coming before he builds the Tower of Babel, it's kind of saying that his kingdom was not only above ground, but actually inside the earth. The books of Enoch even talk about a surviving Nephilim who lives underground, built an underground city, or dwelling, I guess. And there weren't too many Nephilim that did survive the flood, but they did. But then again, it's also linked to the Watchers, or the Anunnaki being sometimes described as underworld gods, and the Watchers actually dwelling in the underground cities, the underground civilization, and the Nephilim ruling above ground. It's pretty interesting how, even though all these people have these different interpretations of things, um, there's a lot of similar aspects of Nephilim Anunnaki Watcher lore, with the underground civilizations, underground cities being pretty common. I mean, we just went over Michael Sarian's version of all that last episode, and yeah. And also, the Bible talks about how the abyss is under the earth, in the heart of the earth. Basically, the place where the Watchers, the fallen angels, are sent. So if you really want to, you can make even more connections. But when it was decided that the Tower of Babel was to be built, Nimrod forced every single human in his civilization that he ruled to come and help out. They didn't have a choice. When we get into the more Zachariah Sitchin stuff, the, uh, the more alien ET version of the Anunnaki, this Tower of Babel will come into play again. Except in that version, it's Baal who's behind the building of it. Nimrod's still there, don't get me wrong, but it's Baal who's behind it. In that version, the Tower of Babel is more like a stargate, trying to reach the firmament. But I think a lot of people assume that Nimrod really just wanted to become one of the Anunnaki. He wanted to become one of the gods, one of the Elohim. And the Tower of Babel was his means to do so. No matter what version of the Tower of Babel or what point of view, it always ends badly, though. It always ends in destruction. And it always ends with the people being split up, Nimrod's kingdom being fractured. And Algernon Herbert definitely thinks that Atlantis, the Nephilim, and Nimrod are all connected. So go ahead and go check out the book, Nimrod, A Discourse Upon Certain Passages of History and Fable. I'll leave a link in the show notes. 
former college professor and BBC correspondent Dr. I.D.E. Thomas in the Omega Conspiracy chronicled increased so-called alien abduction activity and tied it to end-time prophecy concerning the return of the Nephilim. Documentation by abductees worldwide and stories of DNA harvesting by aliens reminded him of the history of biological misuse by the Watchers, and that Thomas to conclude that the identity of the Watchers, and whoever these alien entities are, were somehow connected. Dr. Thomas said that uh, the special desire by these unknown agents for human and animal molecular matter would explain why animals have been killed, mutilated, and stolen by the aliens in heavy UFO sighting areas. I've researched the cattle mutilation phenomenon before, and it's very real and very freaky and weird. But respected UFO researcher Dr. Jacques F. Vallée raised similar questions. And I quote, In order to materialize and take definite form, these entities need to require a source of energy, a living thing, a human medium. Our sciences have not reached a point where they can offer us any kind of working hypothesis for this process, but we can speculate that these beings need living energy, which they can reconstruct into physical form. Perhaps that is why dogs and animals tend to vanish in flap areas, UFO areas. Perhaps the living cells of those animals are somehow used by the extraterrestrials to create forms which we can see and sense with our limited perceptions. Are we dealing with a parallel universe, another dimension, where there are races only semi-human, so that in order to maintain contact with us, they need crossbreeding with men and women of our planet? Is this the origin of many tales and legends where genetics play a great role? fairy tales involving human midwives and changelings, the sexual overtones of the flying saucer reports, the biblical stories of intermarriage between the Lord's angels and terrestrial women whose offspring were giants. End quote. It's interesting how Thomas, like Valet, connects this activity with the legendary acts of the Watchers. So perhaps this more etheric version of the Watchers, um, or Nephilim, entered Nimrod to grant him his superhuman power. According to the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, the Children of Night can function exactly like this. And Archon lore in Gnostic beliefs, the Archons also function in the same way. So there's some pretty cool overlap there. Alright, and as promised, let's do... Let's get into the quick overview of the Gnostics. So the first thing you're going to have to remember about the Gnostics is that they will fight you. <laughs> they are serious, and if you try to make like overarching truths about them, they'll fight you. The Gnostics also like to fight each other, and there's still many around today. Though Gnostics are not a unified religion, there is no Gnostic unifying religion. And many people who might be considered Gnostic actually have rejected some of the earlier aspects of Gnostic thought. And I have mentioned the Gnostics a lot in the Nephilim series, and there are some connections to the Nephilim there that we can make, as well as connections to the Anunnaki myths in general. 
and the word Gnostic comes from the word Gnosis, and for good reason, sounds very similar to the word knowledge. Gnosis I don't really want to define right now, but essentially the Gnostics are one of the earliest forms of Christianity, which if you say that will trigger the hell out of some people. As of right now, it's really impossible to say where and when they actually came about or when they were solidified into something at least uh, resembling an organized group. But you're not going to find anything legitimate, though the evidence that we do have points to them coming about in Alexandria in the first century Common Era. Plato, in his dialogue, The Statesman, used the term Gnosticoi those capable of knowing, and he would label people that he thought should run society as these uh, Gnosticoi. And many philosophers after him too would use the same term. But later, during the time of the Gnostics forming, the meaning came to define something different a little bit. Similar, but more so those capable of knowing the truths of the spiritual world. These are the Gnostics members of a secret society that fused things from Plato, Egyptian, Greek, and Christian thought all into one thing, Gnosticism. And it was the, what's the word? It was the amalgamation of all of the great mystery traditions and wisdom traditions, though Christianity was at the forefront of it and its most prominent influence. And it's Alexandria where the best guess of where they came from was specifically because that's where the first super important and famous Gnostic teacher lived. And his name was Basilides of Alexandria, where he taught everything Gnostic. The one thing that you're going to get to know about Gnostics is that the other Christians, the more establishment, totalitarian Christians, hate Gnostics. So much so that Basilides' work is pretty much erased from history for the most part, with the only thing that really remains of any of his writings being fragments here and there held by Inquisition and heresy headhunters that really don't have anything substantial concerning his work, nowadays barely giving hints of what he truly thought and said. So it's mostly just the guy's a myth. He existed historically, but his teachings and a lot of his... Everything he did is just myth because there's very little evidence to back it up. But like the majority of Gnostics, he did teach that humanity came from, came from, they were beings of light that descended into darkness. We are spiritual beings that have been trapped here in the darkness of material matter by Yadaboath, the Demiurge. And it was Jesus who came down from the kingdom of light to teach the fallen how to return to their home in the realm of light. And we'll be right back to continue the overview of the Gnostics after a quick break. You're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. The show is sponsored by Blueberry, and if you're interested in starting your own podcast, use our link. Go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click on the Blueberry link on the homepage. By doing so, you'll be helping the show. 
Blueberry is optimized for iTunes as well as all podcast hubs. You won't have to worry about expensive contracts or fees. In fact, you won't have to leave your own website. You'll have your own RSS feed and no third-party site. Try it for a month free by going through Cryptic Chronicles. Also, if you're a fan of cryptic content, please support the show on Patreon. By giving just $1 a month, you can really assist us in posting more content frequently. You'll also have access to bonus ad-free episodes of the show and the Discord channel. To keep up with all Cryptic Chronicles content, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and of course Facebook. Give the Facebook page a like and join the Cryptic Chronicles group. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for supporting the show. But most of all, thanks for listening. and I got more coffee. So in order to fully understand Nephilim and Watcher lore, we do have to look into one of the factions that kept the forbidden books of the Bible from being erased from history, much to the dismay of the ancient 1% elite from Rome. Early Christianity was much more of a scattered, scattered, uh, not really united religion into a single dogma, but eventually down the line when the Roman Catholic Church uh, formed to become the new religion of the Roman Empire, they really, really, really hated these guys. Like, they really hated the Gnostics all throughout history. So much to the point that they'd commit genocide on them and kill them in the most horrific ways imaginable. And like I've already said, there is no single unified group of Gnostics, there is no Gnostic church, etc. And the term sums up a variety of people who thought differently and had their own distinct views. Though they have survived till present day, they have mostly had to remain hidden throughout history for reasons I just stated. And uh, don't get me wrong, I'm not dissing on Catholicism, but they did do some pretty messed up stuff. They ruled with an iron fist, and that's not slander, it's fact. And anybody who opposed their dogma was <laughs> not going to have a good time. But despite their best efforts, the early ways of practicing Christianity and Christian spirituality in general survived. The whole tyranny and oppression and censorship started when Emperor Constantine, the Roman Emperor Constantine, finally won and united all of the ancient Roman Empire, deciding that Christianity would be an excellent political tool to control the masses. Oh, and don't get me wrong, Christians were always pretty much oppressed, but this is what I mean by that is this is when there was a unified Christian church that would oppress any others. Any form that didn't agree with the way they looked at things was screwed. It was basically conformed to the way that they look at things or you're going to suffer some prejudice, which is just a horrific way to look at things. But these arch heretics refused to conform to how the elite wanted things done. And it's thanks to these Gnostics that we have the apocryphal texts, or the forbidden books of the Bible as they're known on the History Channel. 
Wait, actually, no, that's not entirely accurate because there were apocryphal texts that were found in Africa. But for the most part, it's thanks to the Dead Sea Scrolls that we have the complete text that we got. Concerning the Book of Enoch, there's actually many references in the New Testament by Jesus and the disciples. Yet there's no Book of Enoch in the official version of the Bible. And this reference to non-existent stuff kind of confused people in the Middle Ages. Though the apocryphal text played a much bigger role in early Christianity and all of the people in Judea when Jesus was around back before the fall, before the Roman Empire destroyed the Kingdom of Israel, they were all very aware of the Book of Enoch and the apocryphal texts, which is why they referenced them in the New Testament just offhand as if it's common knowledge. And as I went over in part one of the Nephilim, the modern Christians and the ancient Christians are kind of unrecognizable, but modern Christians as well as ancient official Roman Catholic Christians hate the Gnostics. I mean, even till this day, it's like crazy how polarized they are. When I was researching and every time I came across a Christian source, it instantly turned biased and derogatory. Which sucks because it's hard for me to read that kind of stuff and take it serious when I see that your entire argument is just based off confirmation bias and ego then I don't find anything you say credible especially when they're making all kinds of judgments on things that are objectively wrong or have obviously not actually researched anything themselves but why why all the hate and just what did the Gnostics have to do with the Nephilim? Well, to be honest, the hate is very justified from a dogmatic perspective. Because the Gnostics look at things 180 degrees off from the mainstream religions. See, to the Gnostics, the god of the Old Testament is known as the Demiurge. Yadaboath. The great Archon. They don't see that god as god at all but essentially a jailer. The true God to the Gnostics is ineffable and beyond comprehension. The source, the light, etc. There is an aspect of it in many of its creations and slivers of light, like in the goddess Sophia that birthed the Demiurge and lesser entities called Archons that was created by the Demiurge. Though the Demiurge shapes dark angels, I mean Archons, in uh, many traditions too, he can't really create life, so he had to corrupt what was already there. In any case, Sophia's creation of the Demiurge was more of an abortion than a birth. She was even surprised herself. There's many different versions of this Gnostic Genesis, but Sophia essentially fell into time and space and had some pretty bizarre set of events come upon her. Creation was infinite, but for a time, she'd be trapped in this little pocket that is our universe. Gnostics believe that the coming of Jesus was this outer, more pure and righteous, true God that was reaching out to help humanity under the tyranny of the Demiurge. So the Gnostics still believed in Jesus, just very differently, with this true God of creation also having many different names. But let's just call it Source, since it's unknowable and beyond comprehension to even try and define it with uh, our human brains, at least according to the Gnostics. And from that point on in the New Testament, when God is all about peace, love, 
good uh, goodness, uh, holiness. Like a lot of people seem to think that the God from the Old Testament and the New Testament are very different. And the Gnostics <laughs> see it the same way. But this uh, God of the Old Testament is the Demiurge and the God of the New Testament is the, the true God. It does seem to be a different God that acts very differently than the one in the Old Testament. But at the same time, they still had to use the old beliefs and the old religion and the old wording of doing things because if you went against the grain too much back then, you were going to get stoned to death pretty quick. So that's a good uh, example too at the same time why Gnostics can actually survive amongst normal Christians and like hide in plain sight as long as they play their cards right. And as I said before the break, uh, it really, Gnostics really came into prominence in Alexandria and the Greek philosophers in general. So Gnosis is a Greek word for knowledge and Gnosticism and religion in general. It refers to awareness, experience, and knowledge of the presence of God. It also frequently refers to self-awareness as one realizes and recognizes the divine spark within their mortal shells. Though I gotta say that some Gnostic sects were really serious and took that kind of stuff too far to the point where they considered the human body like uh, profane, I guess. And they were against even procreating or having normal sex. Like it was a sin to actually bring a child into the world or to bang your girlfriend. And if you can't procreate, then don't expect your religion or point of view to last throughout next generations. Hence why many of these crazier Gnostic sects died off, because you can't continue it if you don't have people that will, you know, hold the lantern. If everybody just dies off slowly, say bye-bye to your religion. So there's many more crazier sects of Gnostics that should not be taken serious. I mean, in some, masturbation itself was considered like a huge deal that you should never do. Which is crazy. It's been scientifically, objectively proven that in moderation, it's very good for you. And why would God not want you to do something healthy? So like usual, certain people take stuff way too far. And not all Gnostic beliefs should really be given any light of day or relevance or serious inquiry. But I think I'm kind of going off into the woods. Let's get back to the Book of Enoch. The Book of Enoch is considered one of the Gnostic texts, so don't worry, all this has relevance. In Gnostic lore, Sophia, or Gaia, or whatever, she has many names, but Sophia was separated from the light, the creative force, the source, essentially the true God to the Gnostics, and fell into our universe. Though it was not quite the universe as we perceive it, she was one of the eons, personifications of the mind of God that comprised the eternal realm. And there were other eons who fell into darkness, but that's another tale. However, there were always two eons. They always came in pairs, birthed into existence at the same time, with the eons being gardeners metaphorically to the higher undying realms where the beings of light dwell. Sophia was an entity of creativity, and in her fall, birth, the Demiurge, Pretty much on accident from her creative divine spark though. It was uh, out of her distress. And since there's always two eons, Sophia fell without her counterpart. The balance of yin and yang 
pretty much uh, destabilized. And she was very thrown off in this universe of darkness. But if you're wondering who Sophia's counterpart was, I'm sure you can guess if you've got a clever mind. Yes, you're correct. It was Jesus. But this entity, Sophia, would break up a lot of herself throughout the lore. And uh, I guess at the start, her offspring is the best way to describe it shaped the material universe in darkness. Though when the Demiurge was birthed, it didn't really have the senses to understand or perceive things beyond its limitations, and it thought that it was the sole god. The Demiurge thinks that it is god, so it's not like Satan who has fallen that created and rebelled against god. This Demiurge thinks that it is god. Seriously and would go on to form the material plane. Hear that? Not created, but formed. The Demiurge only could work with what already existed and took what Sophia had and built its own offspring, I guess, in a way. The Archons, or Dark Angels, or Watchers, or Gods, or whatever, I'm sure you get it. But they were born to govern physical matters and make sure nothing breaks the rules within set by the Demiurge. And Yaldabaoth was completely obsessed with itself and found that it would become stronger from beings worshipping it. Though it grew frustrated that its uh, dark angels could not really satisfy its need to be exalted, so it began its experiments to create life in the universe that would empower it and worship it. It didn't work very well. This matrix or simulation the great Archon designed didn't have all it needed to function the way that it wanted to at least. It could mold life forms, but not physical ones that were capable of what it wanted. And here I could branch off into multiple different paths concerning Gnostic lore. So don't think that I'm telling you the end all be all, it's just one version. And in this version, the Demiurge began to become aware of the greater nature of existence. It communicated with Sophia. Though it didn't really understand the nature of the Aeon, or even comprehend that it was its accidental creator, most likely thinking that it created Sophia somehow that it just couldn't figure out, you know, this thing's got a massive ego. It could do some mental gymnastics to make sense of it. But when the Demiurge contacted Sophia, they argued, and she told the Demiurge that it was mistaken in its arrogance, and that the Child of Light had already came into that universe before the Demiurge existed, and that the Child of Light already existed in many slivers within its simulation. And in this version of the lore, this luminous child, the Child of Light, is humanity, with humanity's essence the only natural thing untouched by the Demiurge in this universe though the Children of Light were far from what humans are in our present form. They were more spiritual entities, and they assisted in creation throughout all of the multiverse, I guess. Humans are kind of like angels, so they weren't quite yet humans as we are today. Far from it. But also in other versions, the Child of Light is Jesus. But in all the versions, humans are slivers of this spiritual light, and originally more like angels than bipedal humans. 
And Sophia and the Demiurge argued and had a lot of conflict between each other, but eventually she settled a piece of herself to become the Earth itself, Gaia. And we have to keep in mind that this entity is not limited, so it was just a sliver of her, and she can exist in multiple ways, many, many, many thousands of infinite ways, all at the same time. And she did this as well as leaving more slivers of herself behind before finally rejoining the Eternal Realm. And Gnosticism can kind of get confusing a bit right here because some Gnostic points of view don't believe that this has happened yet, and Sophia is actually still here in our realm. Completely, not just a sliver of herself, or many slivers. But in any case, the Demiurge did not like that at all. However, he had an idea. Depending on the source, it made deals with or tricked these entities of light, forcing them into doing what it bidded. The Demiurge channeled these sparks of divine light into physical bodies it molded out of matter. With these physical bodies not really allowing the entity's ability to retain its knowledge of its former self. They could not retain the consciousness of what they once were, and had great limitations placed on their awareness in basically all factors. These sparks of light analogous to souls. Thus Yaldabaoth created the first humans, which were exactly what it wanted. They would worship the jealous and wrathful god and empower it, and it would feed off of them. It would feed off of its need to be worshipped and acknowledged, as well as all the energy that they produced from their chaotic emotions. Not only Yadabaoth, but all the Archons would also feed off of this energy. Depending on what Gnostic version you're reading, the entity that was the snake in the Garden of Eden could be different. In one version, the snake is an eon that would later incarnate as Jesus himself and gave Eve the light of knowledge, awakening a small part of the divine spark within her by eating the fruit of knowledge. In another version, the snake straight talks shit first, saying he is the opposer, but only the opposer to the aspect of humans imposed by the demiurge and then turns into an angel and also gives humans the knowledge of good and evil which uh, really pissed off the Demiurge, but it wasn't game-changing since it could still manipulate the Children of Light for its own goals. Hello, my name is Nessie. You might remember me from such places as Loch Ness, because I'm a Loch Ness Monster. Cryptic Chronicles is sponsored by Blueberry. If you're interested in making your own podcast, just go to Blueberry.com or by going to CrypticChronicles.com, click on the sponsor link on the homepage. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you will not only be helping to support the show, but you'll also have the best podcasting host on the market. There's no contracts, and you can cancel any time. You'll have free 24-hour tech support, syndication with your own RSS feed, as well as a plethora of other goodies that only professional podcasters use. There's no third-party sites to log into. Never leave your own website. 
You remain in control. All you have to do is produce your podcast, write your blog post, and then publish with 29,000 plugins to pick from. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you'll have one month free of the best podcast statistics, as well as one month free of the best podcast hosting. So go through our sponsor, Blueberry, today. And if you can, visit Loch Ness, because I am very hungry. Hello, dear listener. Have you ever had a paranormal experience? A spiritual or esoteric experience? Have you ever seen a UFO or something that you could not explain? Have you ever witnessed anomalous activity that defies reality? Have you ever experienced unexplained mysteries of existence? If you have your own cryptic tale and would like to have it shared on the podcast, then call 1-800-757-6049 and leave a message of your experience. If it's what Cryptic Chronicles is all about, then it will be shared on the show. Just make sure you thought about what you will say ahead of time, and give a clear and concise account. Also make sure to leave your name, where you're from, or any information that will assist in making a clear picture to portray to listeners of Cryptic Chronicles. Once again, call 1-800-757-6049. That's 1-800-757-6049. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back. So the souls of the children of light were trapped in the solar system and would be recycled over and over, as well as more being drawn in to be trapped. They were the toys of the Demiurge and totally oblivious to their predicament. However, it was possible to wake up these children of light in their incarnations through Gnosis. So even though things were pretty messed up, there was still hope. Though throughout their lives, the Archons would always get in the way of them getting in the way of them coming to this enlightenment. So the Archons are very analogous to the agents from the Matrix and pretty much perform the same function. And you'll see a lot of uh, Gnostic influence in the Matrix movies. And just like how there's agents keeping everybody trapped in the simulation without thinking that there might be something else, there's also those who try to wake up people trapped within, like Morpheus and his team of red pills. The Gnostics believe that there are two different types of angels here. The Dark Angels, Archons, Agents, and the Angels from the Eternal Realm, just below the Eons. There is the God of the Old Testament, the Demiurge, and there is the God of Jesus, the Heavenly Father existing far beyond our comprehension outside the simulation. The Dark Angels are the Jailers, or Wardens of Material Matter. The Watchers from the Book of Enoch to the Gnostics were a group of these Dark Angels, and like humans also had the ability to quote-unquote wake up. They were to watch over the Demiurge's toys and not interfere unless they messed with their jail cell. But as we know, that didn't really go as planned, now did it? Thanks to Sophia, these Dark Angels knew the true nature of humans. In this version of the lore, the Watchers descended to Earth to wake us up and uh, 
bring us knowledge to teach us and shape us in a way that we could change our fate from the influence of Saturn, the Demiurge. They bred with humans, not because they were just horny, but so their influence could remain with humans after they were inevitably slain or imprisoned by the vengeful Yadaboath. In this version, the Nephilim are looked at as extremely wise and benevolent beings that led humanity through the darkness in an attempt to wake them up in an attempt to show them their potential and brought them all the knowledge that they needed to create civilization and better their lives. They did this while also furthering the snake in the Garden of Eden's mission to wake up the Children of Light. To the Gnostics, the Watchers and Nephilim are self-sacrificing saviors of humanity who are now punished by the Demiurge for helping us. Basically, in eternal torment, Fascinating stuff, right? It makes it perfectly clear just why Christians hate Gnostics so much. This all makes Enoch kind of look like the bad guy. And the angels and God from the book of Enoch. Villains. But in earlier episodes, we've already come across versions of the Nephilim that were actually the good guys. So it's nothing new. But in the Gnostic version, it's not only this, but Lucifer himself is seen as the Lightbringer, who rebelled against the Demiurge to also enlighten man to his Gnosis, and give them the spark of light to help free them from the simulation. But don't freak out, I am in no way saying that Lucifer is good, or propagating the worship of Lucifer, or anything like that, do not get me wrong. I'm just covering lore. It's not my opinion, it's just part of the narrative. And also remember that I said a lot of Gnostics themselves, especially the more um, philosophically orientated ones, a lot of them completely disregard and reject the entire Demiurge rhetoric, including Lucifer. But then again, at the same time, Lucifer may not be the same thing that a lot of mainstream Christians think. They'll never hear that, of course, because they're far too polarized and biased and scared because there's a lot of fear that comes from it. But to the rest of us, we can see that there are different versions that don't always align with the mainstream narrative. But in this version, Lucifer is similar to Prometheus, bringing the light of civilization to humanity and then being punished by Zeus for doing so. And it also it's important to know that in the past, the word Lightbringer has also been associated with Jesus in the Bible. In fact, he's boldly proclaimed as the Lightbringer. Even in the crazy book of Revelation 22:16, I quote, I, Jesus, am the bright and morning star, end quote. If the translators of this passage had chosen to translate this verse using Latin, just as they did with Isaiah 14.12, it would read, I, Jesus, am Lucifer. <laughs> so yeah, they're pretty much her heretical to the core, I guess, concerning mainstream Christianity. But then again, a lot of it's backed up in the Bible itself. So Christianity does, or Judaism for that matter, does not have a monopoly on the word Lucifer because it actually predates Christianity by thousands of years. The word Lucifer only occurs officially in the modern Bible one time. That's only one time 
in the entire Bible. And that's in, as I just said, is Isaiah 14, 12, which says, I quote, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? End quote. Those who read this verse in its actual context will clearly see that the sentence is applied specifically to a certain Babylonian king, who is a pretty epic uh, enemy to the Israelites, with war being their main relationship. The original Hebrew letters for the word are He, Yad, Lamed, Lamed, which literally means bright star or shining one. A term applied sarcastically or mockingly by the Israelites to this particular enemy of theirs. The translators of the King James Version of the Bible, one of the chief of whom was a well-known Rosicrucian initiate, Dr. Robert Flood, a fact which will no doubt shock and horrify many Christians, chose to translate this word with the Latin word Lucifer. And to make this, uh, this one-time mentioned name associated with Satan too, only really came around during the Dark Ages or Middle Ages, so things aren't what they seem, but I digress. Going off into explain land again, I'm just saying that Gnostic Christianity doesn't see it the same way as Orthodox Christianity. Like, they don't see evil, they're not worshipping evil, they're not like Satanists or anything like that. It's just not the same context to them. To them, Lucifer is giving the Demiurge the finger. And even then, it's only certain, like, uh, some points of view of Gnosticism, not universal, with Lucifer defying the Demiurge. Crazy shit, right? No wonder Judaism and Christianity wanted these guys dead wholesale. But it still mirrors a lot of other mythology found throughout the ancient world. And in this version, it's safe to say that Thanks to these watchers in Nephilim that we have any notion of spirituality or higher knowledge whatsoever. It's thanks to them that we have philosophy, wisdom, and the ability to become enlightened through Gnosis. The great Archon and Archons don't create anything, they just manipulate what was already here and uh, keep keeping us in a physical world mindset focused on material gain, ego, and all things to do with the physical world around us. Eating, sex, money, all that. In today's world, probably the TV, the media, celebrities, just dumb stuff that doesn't matter in general. Anything like this is used to stop the children of light from exploring their consciousness or any higher thought whatsoever, including philosophy, wisdom, spirituality, the hidden higher nature within all human beings, all that. They always try to distract from the things that really matter because it's a nature that if found could lead the us humans and our souls to break out of the Demiurge's prison. In a way, not only allowing humans to communicate with their higher self and the subconscious, the true pilot behind the ship of consciousness, but also our cousins in the cosmos as well. That's like According to the Gnostics, I already said, like, creation is infinite. So there's tons more beings out there like us just waiting to connect to us. However, as long as the Archons keep people hypnotized by material things, they're much less likely to wake up. And the Demiurge wants to keep humans in its game as long as it can, basically, at all costs. 
And obviously, since Christians have a kill on sight paradigm with Gnostics, they had to keep uh, their teachings secret and only give it to those who are worthy. These hidden Gnostics have always snuck into places of influence, so you can actually see their symbolism everywhere in history, from architecture to anything, really. No matter how hard they've tried over the years, none of the great powers could ever snuff out the Gnostics. According to the Gnostics, this is in no small part thanks to Sophia existing as the sound of the earth and watching over them, as well as the true angels from the eternal realm and the rebelling dark angels such as the Nephilim. Because remember, not all Nephilim were wiped out from the Cataclysm, and their bloodline supposedly still exists till present day, and kind of still pull the strings of civilization from the shadows. And it's important to mention too that the, the good angels, the angels from the Eternal Realm, are actually the same angels that people might associate with the Demiurge, but that's wrong. So the angels like Gabriel, uh, Mikael, you know, all the good angels that we think of when we think of archangels and the like, they are the good guys. So Gnostics aren't trying to say that they're of the Demiurge. More so to them, it's like you got to see the overlapping and how things work through other things and how they can't, and people who wrote stuff, can't be honest about stuff. The, uh, the secrets and true truth being kind of between the lines. And if I explain that horribly, good. It's supposed to be really confusing. But even though they have survived, many Gnostic orders, like I already said, were wiped out over the years, including allegedly the Knights Templar. But these groups are factually hidden throughout everywhere in history, and just like today as back then, there is a shit ton of propaganda pumped out against them. People have called them devil worshippers and Luciferians and the like. I mean, just research it and uh, you'll see what I'm talking about. However, they are actually pretty righteous and good people across the board. So yeah, this form of early Christianity is extremely dangerous to the status quo. Some Gnostic sects took their teachings way too far, as I've already said, but the Gnostics are far too abstract and unique to ever be summed up as just one thing and thrown into a little box for classification. The born-again idea that came from Jesus in early Christianity was originally Demiurge consciousness programmed into humans, making them die. But once they wake up, they are reborn as their true selves with their divine spark activated. And the Demiurge keeping the divine spark away from humanity is pretty much its main goal, and why there is a long war on psychedelics and keeping them out of the hands of ordinary people because it actually gives a glimpse of our higher nature and other possible forms of existence and thought process not limited by the Demiurge and our physical minds. DMT, pure DMT, is probably the best example of this. But if you were born again and you achieved Gnosis, then when you die, you can leave the simulation, the Demiurge's creation. You're not going to be recycled over and over, but can return to being a light being or even go back to the kingdom of light, the eternal realm, if you really want to. There's a gajillion different ways to look at it from a Gnostic point of view, but essentially, if you do achieve Gnosis, then you're free. So to the Gnostics, the good guys are the bad guys, and the bad guys are the good guys. 
And what we think is good is actually bad for us, and what we think is bad for us is actually good for us. And according to the Gnostics, it's thanks to the Watchers and the Nephilim that we're even able to comprehend our higher nature. The Nephilim that ruled the world before the Flood were wise and progressive rulers that helped awaken humanity to its greatness. And after the Cataclysm, they helped the rebirth of civilization, the Demiurge failing in its attempt to wipe them out of the simulation. To the Gnostics, the true path to enlightenment and the light is going within, not without. Any religion based on material notions is the worship of the Demiurge to them. And that's some pretty dangerous stuff right there. It takes all the power away from the church and any dogmatic religious institution and turns it into a very personal responsibility of the individual, which some say was the original agenda of Christianity in the first place. Now you see why mainstream dogmatic Christians hate Gnostics and why they had to hide for thousands of years when they were not being killed off in genocide by the Roman Catholic Church. Depending on the point of view of any branch of Gnosticism, the Demiurge isn't necessarily bad, but just another cog in the machine and serves as a higher purpose. But then again, there are also many that see the Demiurge as an unnatural corrupting force, no better than a jailer to humanity. And remember to take all the lore on Gnosticism with a grain of salt. So there you go, as requested, an overview of the Gnostics. That's the Gnostic view of the Watchers and Nephilim, which is insanely unique and fascinating. Sorry I didn't get into the intro of the Sumerian stuff like I said I'd try to. I just kind of ran out of time and went on too long concerning the Gnostics. But I'll definitely be covering it in the next episode, where we can look over the mainstream view of the Sumerian tablets and the story of the Anunnaki. Cryptic Chronicles is available on iTunes, Spreaker, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and pretty much all podcast hubs. If you enjoy the show, please leave a good review because it really helps us out and grows the show and I would be your best friend forever. Let's look at a couple comments here. Uh, concerning the Nephilim Part 5 episode, Jamie Davis says, Okay, I got a question that has been on my mind for a while. I watch Supernatural, I know it's fiction-based, but they do incorporate real-world myth and legend into the show. Lucifer had a kid, Jack. With a human female, he therefore is a Nephilim being the child of an archangel. 
So wouldn't Jesus have been one also, being the human-born child of a celestial being? Had to ask because it's been bugging me for a while. Well, Jamie, check out the comment because I responded, and yes, Supernatural is an awesome show, though I prefer it only up till season five. But from watching it pretty much since the start, it's yeah, pretty nostalgic towards it. Hate to see that it's ending. And Scott Burbank on the Aleister Crowley Part 3 episode says, If you actually read his vast amount of work, you might actually understand something about occultism and magic. Although he didn't live a saintly life, he did contribute to spirituality well beyond many people. It's easy to dismiss someone when you have no knowledge about them. I think this is because a lot of people in the comments were talking crap. But Scott, you're right in a lot of ways. Uh, just remember to take all that stuff with a grain of salt. Thank you for the comments. There's always going to be people scared of things that go outside of their paradigm and confirmation bias. And don't worry, I'm never insulted. In fact, I like the comments where people give me harsh criticisms because I feel like uh, that feedback makes me better. And I utilize what they say to make the show more entertaining. Make sure you support alternative tech to fight corporate slash government censorship by the establishment if you want a future of freedom and free speech and free thought for that matter. Otherwise, even cryptic chronicles will one day be censored and basically only state approved media will be allowed to fill your mind. Go to BitChute, Dailymotion, Vimeo, DTube, Rumble. You can find cryptic chronicles at all these alternative tech sites. I'll also be making social media profiles on all the alternative social media hosts soon enough. And trust me, this censorship crap that's going on is like, it's pretty serious. Go check out the new terms and conditions on Instagram. It's insanely Orwellian and basically grants itself permission to spy on you and your computer, like any files you have on your computer, your searches, uh, your cell phone, including access to your camera. I wish I was joking, but go check it out. I'm not joking. It's pretty crazy and people don't even realize it. They don't even check that kind of stuff. But uh, I'll still reply on my Instagram. I'm just going to not have it on my phone because those terms and conditions are insane. But in any case, follow CC on all social media with our awesome massive group on Facebook, especially Pretty Rockin'. As always, thank you patrons, Angie Allen, Paul, Ashley, Stephanie Wilkie, Leanne Watson, Linda Gonzalez, and Megan Crosswell. If you'd like to become one of the greatest badasses who ever lived, just go to crypticchronicles.com and click on the Chronicler's Vault at the top of the homepage. By doing so, you'll also receive a super secret special handshake, personally from me. And by personally, I mean in your imagination. But, uh... Yeah, thank you for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. And as the greatest king of the ancient world once said, Indeed, you desire truth in the deepest parts. Teach me the wisdom of secret things.